All right. It's good to be back with you all. Glad to be here this morning. Uh, let's pray and then let's begin. Heavenly Father, uh, we praise you, we adore you, and we thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you uh, for the foreknowledge that you've elected us unto salvation. Uh, by your Spirit, you've uh, sanctified us and you've applied that redemption purchased by Christ, made that uh, effectual to us, applied that redemption to us. Holy Trinity, we uh, can do nothing else but praise you and, and marvel and wonder at your glory. Uh, so as we study your word now, uh, we pray that we would learn more about you and that we would uh, find uh, fresh insights into all the ways that you've been working all throughout history, all through redemptive history, to bring about your ultimate purposes of creating a people for yourself and uh, dwelling with that people in perfect unity. Uh, so would you be with us now? Bless this hour we have together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, uh, so we're back. Uh, thank you, uh, Sparky, for filling in last week, uh, going over uh, Zephaniah. And so we are fast approaching the end. It seems uh, hard to believe, at least for me. It seems like it's gone by really quickly. It also seems like it's we've been here for a while, and that's, that's been really good just to spend time and, and dig into the Book of the Twelve. Uh, it's been a real, real blessing for me. I hope it's been a blessing for you all as well. Uh, but let's uh, just think back on Zephaniah. I wasn't here last week, uh, so can somebody fill me in on uh, what you guys all talked about, uh, how that discussion went, uh, and there's a there's a couple points that I'll make as we launch into Haggai. But just wanted to um, see where everybody's at and. we get going this morning. So so Zephaniah, uh, it's the last of one of the of the four uh, prophets we've been looking at recently in, in this most recent uh, book, with, uh, uh, starting with Micah. Um, so Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and now Zephaniah. Um, Zephaniah pivots us into a new section, uh, the post-exilic prophets, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. That's what we'll finish up the class with. We'll, we'll talk about Haggai this morning. We'll spend a couple weeks, the next two weeks, on Zechariah. It's a longer uh, prophet, so it'll be good to spend a couple weeks going over all of that. And then we'll, we'll end with Malachi. So we have four weeks left, uh, counting this, this Sunday. Um, but Zephaniah, what, what, uh, what did you think of Zephaniah and, and how it connected with the larger story and how it progresses the story. Uh, just any any thoughts, any anything from last week as we move into uh, the discussion today. He's always interrupting, you know. He's always, uh, he's always jumping. I didn't see no, but just the thing that struck me, Levi, as Sparky yeah. was teaching, and as I read through it before class, was just the the complete devastation of the day of the Lord, mm-hmm. right? How, how thorough, how how 
granular the day of the Lord is, and it's particularly the manifestation of his wrath, his righteous wrath, you know what I'm saying? Kind of like a, it would be like a father who had a two-year-old child who had leukemia, and that leukemia was killing their child. What would be the posture of that father towards that, that leukemia that's destroying? I just want to, I mean, annihilate it. But just, it was sobering. It was a really sobering mm-hmm. book in, in that sense, very searching. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's a great analogy because this day of wrath, so I mean, that's perfect. It's still up here. We have this, those two, those twin themes, they go together. We've talked about from the very first day. This day of, of judgment and this day of mercy. It's it's an, and it's a complete. Both of them are complete. There's no uh, there's no uh, variation or shifting shadow to use biblical imagery. There's no uh, there's no vagueness about it. They're they're both complete, holistic. There will be a, a total judgment, but there's also a complete mercy. And when God shows mercy, that is also complete. There's no there's no ifs ands or buts about that either. And we see both of those so beautifully in Zephaniah. Uh, and that's, that's one of the things I wanted to uh, talk about um, as we go into uh, Haggai. Um, that helps us, because uh, Zephaniah, again, it, it launches us right into Haggai so beautifully. But just thinking about these two twin themes, one of the questions on page 25 of the handout uh, that I'm sure uh, Bill talked about last week was this, this language of being quiet at the day of the Lord. And how uh, we're, we're always made quiet by the day of the Lord, but there's there's a difference. We're, we're either in one camp or the other. And one of the camps we're in is in uh, chapter 1 of Zephaniah, verses 7 and 8, which says, Be silent or be quiet before the day of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord that is this day of fierce judgment, of, of wrath. Um, in chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, it lists uh, very rapidly how this day is going to be described, how this day is going to be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, darkness and gloom, a thick darkness and clouds and trumpet blasts and battle cries against all these things. But then we flip to the end of Zephaniah, and we see that God's people, as they're being restored, uh, they're, uh, they're also called to be quiet. Chapter 3, verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by what? He'll quiet you by his love. And so we're, we're made quiet again on this day. But we see that we're when we're in the Lord, we're made quiet in his love and in his mercy and not in not in his wrath, not shuddering from the destruction that's coming. And so we see then on the, on the grand scale, Zephaniah, he employs both of these, these two themes to us. And then, of course, the, the second thing I really wanted to look at uh, as we head into Haggai now is this, um, this promise of restoration, this, this last uh, section of Zephaniah. Um, really beginning in in verse uh, or chapter three verse nine, but all the way through uh, obviously uh, verses uh, fourteen through twenty, uh, this promise of of restoration that's going to happen. And we see that very clearly at the end of the book. God promises that He will restore Israel's fortunes, uh, Israel, Jerusalem, 
the daughter of Zion, all these different names for God's people. He's going to restore their fortunes. And so the question is, now that we're, we're looking in the grand scheme of, of, uh, of the book of the Twelve, so we have this prophecy at the end of, of Zephaniah that God's going to restore Israel. So all this stuff has happened. Uh, we already have an account of all the ways that uh, uh, God is going to judge Israel because of their sin. And like a, like a cancer, uh, sin is something that has to be dealt with for the good of the, of the person, for the good of God's people. He has to deal with this issue, and he's dealing with it in this way. You have these prophecies of, of how uh, the, all the nations will also be judged and blessed if they call upon the name of the Lord. And we're getting all this information uh, that God will uh, answer uh, the question of the problem of evil. He will judge wicked nations of, of Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, and Babylon. And he's going to do all of this, and he will restore God's people. Uh, so Zephaniah preaching at the, the end of, of uh, the southern kingdom in the twilight years. Uh, they're going into exile. He will, God will restore uh, his people. So in a narrow sense, what, what is that restoration? If we're in, in the narrow, uh, not, not thinking long-term, not thinking uh, eschatologically yet, not thinking of, of end times, not thinking of our present-day reality, but just in that present, in that day, what does that restoration look like? What would they have been expecting? What would they have thought? Return from exile. Exactly, yeah. The, the return from exile, that is the restoration and when they return from exile, what, what's the main theme of these last three prophets of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi? What, what's Haggai, what's his big issue with the people? Rebuilding the temple. Rebuilding the temple, exactly. Exactly. So what Haggai does in the book of the Twelve and this story... As we see what the restoration looks like, we see temple. We also see this uh, this uh, Davidic king show up. Look at that. But Haggai is preaching to this uh, people that have returned from exile his first generation of people. And he's, he's telling them that this prophecy of Zephaniah, it, it is being fulfilled in one sense, but they need to temper their expectations because the future reality of, of this restoration isn't here yet. But it is coming. And it's going to come in this Davidic king who points back all the way to Hosea 3, 4, and 5, who's going to uh, dwell with his people, this, this concept of temple. And we're going to look at that theme today because it's such an important theme in Scripture, this theme of God's dwelling place, this theme, theme of temple, of dwelling. So that's how uh, Zephaniah connects then to Haggai and why it's um, so important that we read these books together. Again, why we... Why this is telling? It's telling one one story, as it were. It's telling one unified story, 
of, of how God's working in redemptive history to bring about his ultimate goal, his ultimate uh, prophecy of, of judgment and mercy through the Davidic king restoring uh, his people. So does that, does that make sense? Kind of where we're at in the story, where we're going. So, so we're now, we're, we're post-exile. We've returned now from exile in, in, that, in the chronology of it, uh, in the history of it. So we have these, refer to them as the post-exilic prophets, just the prophets that were active after the exile. That's all that means. Uh, during these, these first uh, few generations of, of people that returned from, uh, from exile, coming back. Uh, west into the land of Israel. So any other questions or anything about that? Or where we're at? Alright. Well, so Haggai uh, begins. We have this one. Um, well, we have, we have multiple uh, very specific uh, time references in, in Haggai. And we can, we can organize the book into four major sections revolving around those, those four specific uh, time references. So, of course, the first one begins in the second year of Darius, king. Uh, sixth month, on the first day of the month, we see the, Lord, uh, the word of the Lord came to him. So Darius, uh, he was uh, the king of, of uh, Persia at the time, uh, the, the second king. So Cyrus was the first king. And remember his proclamation, he shows up in, in scripture uh, in the beginning of Ezra and, uh, and Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, he's the one that uh, had the edict to let the people return from exile. Uh, so he was the king of Persia. He conquered Babylon around 539. And so that's when the exile started uh, returning. And so here now in Haggai, we have this uh, second wave of exiles uh, returning uh, and, and more people returning. And uh, so we have uh, this, this little kind of handout here that has some of the dates just to give us a, a picture of, of uh, where we're at uh, in, in the story. Um, so the people in the first year of Cyrus, they return from exile. We, we read about that in Ezra chapter 1. And uh, we see that they're beginning to build the temple. They, they're beginning the rebuilding project um, through Ezra's leadership. Uh, and we, we also read uh, that um, through all the days of Cyrus, they've been building this temple. Now, all the days of Cyrus, uh, that um, was... Uh, beginning in that 539 year, all the way to around 520 B.C. or so is, is uh, when he, his reign ended, and, um, and then Darius rose to power uh, soon after that. But you see, the temple is being built, and then the temple stalls, and there's people in the land, there's uh, the Samaritans, there's, there's people that are pushing back against them, and they, they, they're um, hindering the building of the temple, and God's people are are being feeling rejected and they're not uh, giving their their effort to rebuilding the temple. So we read about in Ezra that the te- rebuilding of the temple stalls, and that's where Haggai comes into play. That's that's the story we're at now. The people have returned. They've been there uh, for uh, close to uh, two decades, and the temple has not yet been built. It's it's been stalled. The progress has slowed down, 
And so Haggai shows up uh, on the scene, and he's going to stir the people to rebuild the temple. He's, he's mentioned in Ezra chapter 5 um, to, to that he uh, and, and Zechariah were, were urging uh, the leaders, uh, Zerubbabel, Ezra, uh, Joshua, as we see here, to uh, rebuild the temple. And so Haggai, his, his, um, his ministry, at least in this book, we see happens over the course of just about three months. Um, that's, that's the time period of this book. And so we have these, these four sections over uh, three months of uh, calling God's people to faithfulness, uh, to, um, to rebuild the temple, to live according to God's law, but ultimately to look forward uh, to um, God's blessing. And part of that blessing, part of that restoration is going to be through this Zerubbabel figure who's talked about the end of Haggai. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that as we go through. So I want to see if we have the best way to go about talking about this. I think there's really, yeah, you know what? There's really just those those kind of two major themes in Haggai is the the temple theme and this this Davidic theme theme, this signet ring, this this Zerubbabel character. So let's let's start with that second one as we kind of look through this handout that I that I had from last time. And we'll just use that to, to frame our conversation today. So that, that first question under understanding the text, uh, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, he's declared to be God's chosen signet ring. So this is the end of Haggai. And if there's any questions about any specific text or any whatever that might be, please just uh, let's, we'll talk about it. I'm hoping to cover the whole book. Um, but if there's any specific questions, please uh, feel free to ask those at any time. But right now, uh, let's look just at the end, and then we'll kind of go back through and go through uh, the book, uh, back to the beginning. But at the end, we have this, uh, this, this final word of the Lord, chapter 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, he says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, so we have that, that day language here, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. And I will make you like a, or like the, signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So first off, who, who is Zerubbabel? Who is this guy? Why is he so important? So we know that he's the son of Shealtiel based on this text. Um, but I pointed us to uh, Matthew's genealogy to get some more information. So who, what, which specific king uh, is Zerubbabel a descendant of based on that genealogy in that list? You said, you said David? Yeah. So David, he's a son of, of King David. He's of the line of David. Well, why is that important? Connects him to the, the new David. And, and that David. 
Yeah, is the king of David, is this is the line of David, is that important at all in, in the Bible and the story of, re, of redemptive history? Yeah, I'm, I'm being a little facetious. Yeah, of course, it's very important. This has, been, this has been what we've been looking for this whole time. Is this messianic king, this, this king of David, where God says in that day, in the latter days, you will seek the Lord and you will seek David, your king. And so here, Matthew, he's, and of course he, his point, Matthew's purpose of the genealogy is to show us that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. But we see we're, we're in, uh, in the timeline of, of Matthew's genealogy. We're at the point of the return from, from Babylon. And so uh, Zerubbabel, we know, is the, um, the son of Shealtiel. Going backwards, Shealtiel is the son of Jeconiah. This is Matthew 1, verse 12. Jump back up. Uh, Jeconiah was the son of, of Josiah. So we see Josiah, obviously, a very important king uh, of Judah uh, and the reforms that he did um, but we see that that uh, that history that that uh, genealogy the line of David extending down through Zerubbabel so this is an important figure he's a direct descendant of David yeah so it says he's the governor of Judah is that does that mean the king of Judah at this time is it a distinction that was a designation I believe of the Persian uh, king um, at that time. So, yeah. <laughs> now, I was thinking politically, they would probably not be too wise to take one's uh, name of monarch because they were still under the Persians. Persian. Very much so. Got it. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I was, I, you know, this just happened Providence this week, Levi. I've been reading. I just finished Second Kings, and you know, Second Kings ends with the, the son of David, Jehoiachin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Feasting at the king of Babylon, and it kind of leaves it in, you know, everybody's in exile. It's kind of way before, you know, 170, at least 70 years before uh, this time. But Jehoiachin was actually Zerubbabel's father, grandson. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, how does how does Jehoiachin have an heir in Babylon, and how does that heir get back to Jerusalem? But somehow, in God's providence. Mm-hmm. Just making connection this morning as you're teaching us, yeah. saying, "Wow, isn't that amazing mm-hmm. that that God's son of David, Jehoiachin, mm-hmm. has an heir, Zerubbabel, Shutiel, who has Zerubbabel, mm-hmm. and now he's there." And, yeah, it's just amazing to see what goes on behind the word written, but just through history, yeah. how he's orchestrating all of these yeah. these chess pieces yeah. that might play out according mm-hmm. to his decree. Yeah, and even that at the end—that's a—that's a—that's a note of promise that here's this line of David who's feasting with kings. Like there is hope still, for, right. even in exile, that this that a son of David is still uh, on the throne, as it were. He's still still reigning, even in the midst of his darkness. And yes, yeah, so that that kind of brings us to that that uh, second um, question there, under understanding the text. So we have uh, Jehoiachin, Jehoi or Jehoiakin. Uh, however, I'm going to say it, and and he shows up, uh, and the signet ring language shows up in Jeremiah chapter 22. So, did anybody look back at Jeremiah 22? So it gets a little tricky because uh, kings are hard, and their names are weird, and uh, their names all sound the same, and and sometimes they go by different names. 
So look back though at Jeremiah uh, 22, because this this does give us some more insight into the importance of, of what's going on here. So in Jeremiah chapter 22, Jeremiah is lamenting the destruction that's coming. No one's listening to him. <laughs> no one's listening to uh, God's words and to his prophets. And so he, he has a message first for Josiah. Then he turns to Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, okay, in verse 18. That was Jehoiakim's father, Jehoiakim. So Josiah was a good king. He, he brought about much reform. But that reform uh, was not enough. It didn't stick, as it were. So we see in, in, even in Zephaniah, he's, he's still urging covenant faithfulness. And, and the people are still prone to wander, prone to, to neglect uh, proper worship of God. And we see that with Josiah's uh, descendants, that they quickly abandon any of the reforms that their father did, and they turn to wickedness. So we see that with Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, and Jeremiah laments his, his, um, his reign. And then in verse 24, in Jeremiah 22, God says, And as I live, declares the Lord, though uh, Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, though Coniah were the signet ring of my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid. And he goes on to prophesy the destruction of this Coniah figure. Well, who's Coniah? He's Jehoiakim. He's also called Jeconiah. That's another name for Jehoiakim. Both uh, have the, the same meaning of that, uh, that uh, Jeho, that Yehu, that Yahweh, the beginning of the word. Yahweh will establish. Yahweh will um, make firm, something like that. Both of those names mean the same thing. They both have the same two root words of Yahweh and establish, spelled differently. So all, all that to say, these are the same people. So what's the, what's the prophecy about this signet ring? And again, the signet ring being that stamp of, of approval, the stamp of the king, the, the king's seal. Uh, God saying that if, some, if someone was Yahweh's signet ring, they would be the, the representation of Yahweh. They would be Yahweh's chosen servant, Yahweh's, Yahweh's ambassador, Yahweh's king, Yahweh's chosen leader, his, his Messiah, as it were. So what does it mean then to have that designation removed? Rejection by God. Yeah, exactly. So this prophecy from Jeremiah is that Jeconiah, Jehoiakim, he's going to be He's going to be removed. And, and the implication is that the line of David might even be uh, cut off and removed. And if you look in Jeremiah uh, chapter 30, or sorry, Jeremiah chapter, tw- chapter 22, verse 30, excuse me, it says, Thus says the Lord. This is still talking about Jeconiah here. This is what the Lord is saying about Jeconiah. He says, Write this man down as childless. <laughs> Mark him down for having no children, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So there seems to be a complete, just cutting off now. The wickedness has become such that Jehoiakim will be no more. 
But then, right after that, Jeremiah 23, this prophecy of the righteous branch of David. We don't have time to get into all that. But now, think, knowing what we know about the line of, of, um, of Zerubbabel, going back now to Haggai, knowing who Zerubbabel is, knowing his ancestry, how does what was said about his ancestor, and so that would have been his... Uh, his grandfather, I think I got that right. Jehoiakim, then Shealtiel, then Zerubbabel. So now Zerubbabel is being chosen as a signet ring. So what does that say about what God's going to do through through Zerubbabel? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That God is going to raise up this righteous, righteous branch of David. He's going to restore the booth of David, like in back in Amos chapter 9. And he's doing that through this Zerubbabel figure. So again, we have these this present fulfillment of the prophecy, but we're also pointing ahead to the future reality. And a lot of what Zechariah is going to do uh, next week is talk more about Zerubbabel, talk more about this chosen signet ring, and how he's pointing forward, not just in and of himself, but pointing forward to somebody else, a future Davidic king, even still. But right now we have this hopeful conclusion to Haggai that this signet ring, that the line of David who once was God's signet ring, David's called the man after God's own heart. What could be more (laughs) a better uh, testament to someone's character than that? And his descendants being, that signet ring being removed, but now a future descendant is, is brought back, is, is now uh, being chosen again as God's, uh, as God's holy servant, as God's signet ring, as God's ambassador to his people. And it fits in, too, with like the remnant language that we've been seeing a lot throughout the prophets. The part will be cut off, and, but the remnant will be preserved. Yeah, exactly. And Isaiah 11, <clears throat> the stump of Jesse. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still this, like, you know, I have a tr- couple trees in my yard. I've tried to get rid of them. I've cut them down. They continue to grow by. It's just the resiliency. You know, <laughs> it's just like, come on, I can't get anything else to grow except that which I don't want to grow. Yeah. <laughs> that what I want to grow, then I grow. That what I don't want to grow, grow. So, yeah. you know, a wretched man that I, no, yeah. wretched gardener. <laughs> wretched gardener, yeah. <laughs> Who will say, no, I'll leave it there. No, I don't. Yeah. Yep. We see all the wickedness, all the evil that these kings of David are doing. And God is still, he's still blessing them. He's still keeping his promise, Second Samuel 7, that, uh, that promise to David, that covenant with David, that his, his a son of David will always be on the throne. He's keeping that promise. Because God, that's who God is. He's a, he's a promise-keeping God. And he's keeping the promise throughout. And we, and we see that show up throughout as we go through. Um, excuse me. So that's just very important that we, that we see that as we, as we go through. Uh, because it's, it's hard. It's, we have these long lists of kings. And, and we see all the... Uh, it's, it's hard to keep up with, with all that. And keep it straight in your mind. But just seeing how God, God is working... Uh, is, is helpful for us, and he's working uh, through all these people, bringing them back, and, and now they're, they're going to be blessed in some way through Zerubbabel, but ultimately pointing ahead to this, this future 
uh, Davidic king. But the line of David has not ceased, even through even during exile and even the return from exile. The line of David is still uh, strong. So that was the one of the main themes here in Haggai. This this Davidic king that again connects us to the larger story of the Book of the Twelve. That the the uh, the Messiah, uh, this Davidic king, uh, is coming. There is one who will, uh, who will uh, restore God's people, this Messiah. So that, that promise is still alive and well. This other um, promise of restoration regarding the temple is where I'd like to shift to now. Are there any questions before we kind of shift to temple and the rebuilding project and all of that? You made a reference to... Uh, Kaniah's being childless. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was in uh, Jeremiah chapter 22. It was in 22. Yeah, right at the end, verse 30. Okay. Um, so why why do these persons have other names? So like Zerubbabel is also known as Kaniah. Why, why are some people... Zerubbabel, uh, Kaniah, those are two different people. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, so he's like this person. He's the descendant of this person. Okay. So, um, same way that you go by Matthew and by Matt, uh, nicknames are shortened, maybe you don't go by Matt. No. Matty H., yeah, that's what we call it. That's what it is. So, anything else, man? I'm sorry, man. Uh, I didn't have that. I didn't either. No, 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 no. That is no more. Yeah. Yeah. It's only many H. <laughs> sorry, man. That's what. Many H. There you go. That's much better. Nature. <laughs> All right, let's bring it back in. Sorry about that, Matt. Okay, so we have this timeline here of the kings. We have Josiah and Jehoiakim, and we have Jehoiakim. So we have the word Yahweh, and um, this this word here at the end means is it comes from the verb to establish. This uh, this kin word to establish. So. Yahweh will establish. That's what his name means. We can just spell it differently. Jeconiah. So again, we have the same um, shortened word for Yahweh. And then you see the C, length, the C and the N. So that's the same word to establish. And Kaniah. Yeah. Right, yes. And you can also just lop that off and call him Kaniah. So, not only does he have a different way to spell his name, he also has a nickname for the second way to spell his name. <laughs> just to make sure that you're as confused as possible. That's <laughs> Russian novels. Like Dostoevsky does the same thing. Yeah. His, uh, Brothers Karamazov. Or mm. That's why it's so, they're so difficult to read, yeah. and it is. It makes it difficult. Even Je- Solomon is called Levi, and I was telling him he has a son to name him Jedediah. Jedediah means beloved of the Lord. That was mm-hmm. his name mm-hmm. with Bathsheba, but God calls him Solomon. Mm-hmm. But it, it's just amazing how they have multiple names occasionally. Mm-hmm. These same mm-hmm. same individuals will have, yeah. to your point, pet names or nicknames. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is confusing. And then, so Jehoiakim, he's, um, he's deported. And then um, his uncle, Jehoiakim's brother, Zedekiah, is made king. So you know Zedekiah is the last king of Judah. Uh, so he's made king. Um, and his name was... Uh, what was his name before it? So his name was Second uh, Kings chapter twenty-two. Yeah. So, so he was right. he was renamed because he's the dude that has his eye has his right. son Matt, Matt and I, I think the eyes are taken out. Yeah. So anyway, that's neither here nor there. But some of these are even renamed by, and that's an act of sovereignty by the conquering yeah. nations to to rename their puppet kings, as it were. But anyway, um, we don't need to go down all that rabbit hole. Uh, but that that's kind of the timeline we see here. Um, so he, so that was descendant. These guys were brothers, um, but the the main thing is we see that we're down here in Zerubbabel. His name's interesting. The Zerubbabel. So Zeru, the, the word for seed, which can also be the word for like a offspring. So he he and Babel, Babylon. So he's the seed, or he's the offspring, or he's one that's been begotten in Babylon. And so we see that even out of Babylon, God's restoring the Davidic kingdom, even out of exile. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you interpret then verse 20, uh, 22 30? For God says that this man, righteous man down, has childless. Mm-hmm. And that he does, isn't mm-hmm. that his child will not be like him? His child will be a righteous one. Is that I, I don't understand how we get from Jehoiachin as childless to Shealtiel and I see. A no, no, not at all. I think the way I would interpret it, and whoever wants to jump in, I think like that. That's a. It's the same way that God relents of disaster, and, and it's a very it's a specific disaster when God God promises uh, destruction for sin, um, but even in the midst of that destruction, God still has mercy. And so uh, he, he would have been childless. He maybe should have been childless. Um, and the, the David's line should have ended, but God was merciful and gracious. And so right after that, we see that the, in, in Jeremiah 23, the righteous branch of David, that theme again that we've seen elsewhere in the book of the 12 as well, um, God, God restores and he redeems even uh, when his people... Uh, don't deserve it. Yeah, I think that's that sounds good. <laughs> right on. <laughs> well, let's look at uh, let's look at temple because that that's another such an important uh, uh, theme. Um, There's a lot of connections between the end of Zephaniah, that prophecy of restoration, and the, the, the command or the proclamation to go and rebuild the temple to give your hands a work to do, uh, to restore the fortunes of Israel, all these things. Uh, but let's jump ahead a little bit. Um, we talked about some of the Zerubbabel David connections. So the second page of the handout here. Uh, I'm going to skip that first question that talks about the connection to Hebrews uh, because that that will connect back in if we have time. We're we're flying. Um, uh, But that second kind of main question about the temple. The temple is a major theme throughout Scripture. 
the tabernacle and temple was God's dwelling place with his people. And that it helps explain Haggai's insistence that the people do not neglect this, this project, this rebuilding project. But the physical temple is also, it also served as a symbol pointing to the end time reality that God's presence, which was formerly limited to this physical location, the physical confines of the temple, that God's presence would expand into the whole cosmos. And so I have these, these four bullet points that help, help us to briefly trace through this biblical theology of the temple. Now this, uh, I was really blessed by a book by Greg Beal uh, called God Dwells Among Us. It's an amazing book. I can't find it. I was going to bring it and, and show it to you guys. Um, but I definitely recommend it. It's somewhere, probably got lost in the move. Uh, I recently moved. So, that had a lot of stuff, uh, all, all kinds of places. I don't know. Um, but I definitely recommend that book by Dr. Beal, uh, God Dwells Among Us, because that's what God does. That's the purpose of the temple, is, is God uh, once dwelt with uh, our parents in the garden, which was a, a temple of sorts, perfectly. He, he dwelt among Adam and Eve, um, and uh, there was no barrier between them. There was no sin yet, but... After the fall, after sin entered the world, God still sought to dwell with his people, but he had to do it through specific ways because a holy God cannot dwell with a sinful and unholy people. And so he provides the temple system, the sacrificial system, the Levitical system. The book of Leviticus is all about how God can, can a holy God can dwell with an unholy people. But that's, that's that language of, of, of temple, of God's dwelling place. So... Um, this is just too fast to even do it justice. But if you looked at some of these passages here, let's just go through them. Um, so how does John describe the word becoming flesh in John chapter 1, verse 14? Did anybody have a chance to look through some of these bullet points here? God dwelt among us. Exactly. The fun thing about that verse, and some of the footnotes in your Bibles and some of your study Bibles might point this out, is that verb is the is the verb to to tabernacle, or to, to dwell? So God He tabernacled among us. Now the tabernacle or the temple that's that language of that that dwelling place that housing, and so the word becoming flesh was God making His dwelling place among His people, making this a new tabernacle as it were, a new temple. And um, and it's. We won't look at it now, but if we look at John chapter 1 in that surrounding context and compare it to God's dwelling place uh, at the end of Exodus and the glory filling the temple there, very similar, very, very interesting, very fascinating to see that. We'll jump over the page in in, uh, John to John chapter 2. Jesus cleanses the temple. And um, he cleanses the temple, and then the, the, the Jews and the religious leaders, they're understandably upset, uh, and they ask Jesus, what sign do you do to show us, do you show us for doing these things? Who, who gives you the right to be doing this? That's verse 18, and so Jesus says in, in John 2, verse 19, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But, verse 21, this is the the key verse here, 
John gives us the interpretation. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So what's the temple? It's a place where God dwells, but what is the physical temple in this, in this passage? It's Jesus. It's, it's him. It's, it's his body. It's the word that's become flesh. And when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So again, we're, we're, we're just flying through this quick biblical theology of the temple. So we see that Jesus is <laughs> the temple in John chapter 2. We see that also in the end of Mark. But if we flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to connect all this, I hope, back to Haggai. Ephesians chapter 2, very important passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 talking about our union with Christ and the redemption purchased by Christ. And he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we have that household language. We're, we're members of God's household. Verse 20, We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So what's the temple now, according to Paul here? The church. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the church. And, and what's the foundation? Christ. Foundation is the apostles and the prophets, with Christ being what? He, he's the cornerstone of the whole structure. So Jesus is, Christ is the temple. He's also the cornerstone of the temple. He's, he's, and, and the church itself is being built up now into this, this holy temple of the Lord. So it's as if we have Jesus, who's our access to the Father. He's, he's the dwelling place with man. Uh, he's God's dwelling place with man and himself. And yet through union with him, we're also being built up now into this temple of God, into this, this holy temple. And then flip over now. And then we'll start to, we'll, we'll discuss it more, but just the last kind of major thing, go over to Revelation, chapter 21. So chapter 21, the new heaven and the new earth, verse 3, uh, John hears a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, and there's a footnote there, tabernacle. This is, this is where God's dwelling. is. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And then if you jump over to uh, verses, well, verse 22 and following. So where, where's the temple located? According to Revelation 21, verse 22. Kind of a trick question. Everywhere in the midst of the people. Uh huh. What is verse twenty-two? There is no temple. What? So this is the end-time reality that God's presence is everywhere. It's not confined now to one specific location. 
and God's dwelling is with his people. His people have been built into the temple, as it were, the spiritual temple. There is no physical temple. There is no none of this. There's no need for sun to shine. The glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Um, there is no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord uh, God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. It's back to Eden. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You see the tree uh, show up again, the rivers of life. So this is the, this is the temple, and, and this is what we're talking about here. This is the what Haggai is pointing to. So bringing it back to Haggai now, they they need to rebuild the temple. But we, we read in the story that uh, God's people are um, they're uh, they're feeling dejected because the glory of this temple is not measuring up to its former glory. And so jump back now to Haggai. Haggai chapter 2. Haggai's like asking these questions rhetorically. The, the people are speaking through Haggai in a really interesting way in the prophet. But uh, Haggai chapter 2 verse 3 says, Who is left among you who saw this house and its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So he's talking about these, these people who had seen the previous temple before it was destroyed. And now they're witnessing the foundations of the temple being laid. And they're realizing... This, this isn't the same size. This square footage, this is not the same. It doesn't look the same. It's not near as beautiful, not near as magnificent and glorious. And, they're, and they, it's as if nothing in their eyes. And they're feeling, they're feeling dejected. They're wondering if there's any purpose to what they're doing. Um, but so Haggai tells them in verse 4, Yet now be strong. And he, he encourages Zerubbabel. He encourages Joshua the priest. And then he says uh, in verse um uh, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And verse 7, And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. Uh, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. And then verse 9, jumping down, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. So the latter glory will exceed the former. So don't grow dejected. There is a time coming where he uses this language of shaking the heavens and the earth. The author of Hebrews will pick up on that, talking about, again, uh, the, uh, the nature of this, this new temple that's being built and this new kingdom that author of Hebrews says, that there's a new kingdom coming that will not be shaken. God's going to shake everything else loose. He's going to sift everything, as it were, everything... Uh, unholy, unworthy, everything's going to fall through, but what's left will be this kingdom that cannot be shaken. Uh, this, this temple, this dwelling place, this kingdom of God, which will be left, and his glory will uh, be greater than anything that's come before. And so that's, that's what Haggai's pointing us ahead to. Not that this specific temple that they're building, uh, not the temple that existed in, in Jesus' day, but the temple or the physical temple, I guess, that existed in Jesus' day, but the temple that existed in his body that was being built up and now believers being built up into, uh, that will exceed the former glory. And indeed it does even now as we exist uh, as, as the temple of the Lord. Yeah. And we're called to live in light of that reality as we wait for that day to come when uh, the new heavens and the new earth, uh, in Revelation 21, when that reality will be, will be the reality, when we will dwell with God and see him face to face. Um, so are there any 
questions about any of that as we kind of think about the importance of the temple language, the importance that Haggai put on that. Now, there's a lot of, uh, uh, well, I'll stop there. Are there any questions? And then we'll, we'll end with like two minutes of kind of application from Haggai as we look, look forward. But are there any questions about any of that? I just have one quick question. Yeah. Um, this is the first of the 12 that the word of the Lord is coming not only to the prophet, but also to the priest, Joshua. So, and, and inside of Haggai, that is a constant. And is there any, because as you, as you were talking about this temple stuff, it started occurring to me that if there's going to be a temple on earth, God needs to speak to the priest that's going to be there. But because mm-hmm. Christ is the new priest, the better priest, mm-hmm. Haggai wouldn't need to be told any of that or to have a, a, a priest there as well. Yeah, where, where are you looking? I'm sorry. So if, just in the very, the very first verse where he talks about the prophet... Um, and to Josiah, the son of Joshua. Oh, Joshua. <laughs> yeah, more mm-hmm. J names, right? And to Joshua, the high priest. Then in 12, sorry, in the second one, it's also to Haggai and the priest. But then starting in 10, through the rest of it, it's only to Haggai. Oh, well, I think... Um the confusion. So the word comes uh, by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So the word is still coming by. That's the or, or through right. by means of the prophet. But he's speaking directly to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to the remnant. So the word is through the prophet for these specific people. And the same we see in, in chapter two, verse one. Right. The word of the Lord comes by the hand of Haggai the prophet, and he's speaking to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. Okay. But you're right, both of these characters, we have the, the we talk about that threefold office of Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. Right. We see all three of these offices show up, and that's a whole conversation for another day yeah. of, of Haggai the prophet speaking, and, the, and the, the king figure of Zerubbabel, and the priest figure of Joshua. And again, Joshua and Jesus, those are the same name. So to add more confusion to it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So they both mean that, uh, that Yahweh saves, or that... Uh, Jesus saves. That's his name. It means savior, and um, <clears throat> or, or deliverer. And so we have all of this uh, language showing up. Um, so there's there's a lot there. Absolutely. Any other questions? Yeah. Is this same Joshua that we'll see next week in Zechariah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is so. This is the same time period that we're in right now. Yeah. And then um, so we'll we'll stay in the same time period. Um, uh, a few months later, um, but yeah, we see at the beginning of Zechariah, second year of Darius. We're still in that that same year, uh, five twenty BC ish. Um, several months later now, and then Malachi will jump forward a little bit. Well, uh, just to close, then um, it's important for us to think about what our responsibility is. The the. Job description for us is the same as the job description for the remnant in Haggai. 
and that's to build up the temple of the Lord. But the way we go about doing that is different. We don't, we're not using physical bricks and mortar and hammers and whatever, but it's a spiritual temple of the Lord. But we're still called to, to build that up. We're still called to, to live in covenant uh, faithfulness and live in that reality. I believe we've looked at First Peter in this, in this class before. But it's such an, uh, such an important passage. So First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people, now you, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Where is that from? Yeah. Peter didn't make that up. <laughs> but he's applying it to, the, to where we are now. That's that promise of Hosea. That we are God's people. We've been chosen. We've been built up. So what's, what are we to do? Jump back to chapter 2, verse 1. So then, Peter front loads the imperatives before some of the indicatives here. He says, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Consider your ways. Yeah, exactly. So it's the same same call to covenant faithfulness and obedience because we're God's people and we're, we're uh, called to, to build that temple, as it were. And that's, and that's what uh, God's people and Haggai's time, that's what he was calling them to do. Do not, do not preoccupy yourself with, with building your houses, uh, but build the temple of the Lord first. That's, that's what should preoccupy your time. And so we see that in Peter, we see that in um, and then Paul in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, those passages there I listed, uh, where, where Paul does say very clearly that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, you're the temple of the living God. And so here's, here's what uh, you are not to do, because this is who you are. And that's, that's what uh, we're left with today. Well, uh, thank you so much. If there's any questions, we can talk about it a little bit now, but uh, uh, if not, uh, thank you. Uh, I don't have a handout uh, for today, uh, but start reading Zechariah and just uh, thinking through it. Uh, when we get back together, we'll, we'll begin Zechariah. There's a lot of um, uh, just really interesting and incredible uh, wacky stuff in there. Uh, so, so we'll do that uh, next time. Thank you, guys.